Here we are. It's our 100th episode of 1819 News, the podcast, and we're bringing on a very special guest to celebrate that 100th episode. Who better than the most conservative politician in the state of Alabama, our state auditor, Andrew Sorrell. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this here podcast, where we are pursuing a free and flourishing Alabama every single week. We have an incredible episode today. I hope it's extremely entertaining, but if nothing else, we're having what might be the most conservative person in state politics in the state of Alabama, who is our state auditor, Andrew Sorrell, coming on to tell us his story to talk about his time in the state house and where he got that most conservative label. He's actually won awards uh, for being the most conservative person uh, in state politics. And then we're also going to talk about what, what does the state auditor do? Uh, what is the state auditor in Alabama like versus, I don't know, the one in Mississippi? Um, what are some of his plans to do with the rest of his time in this office? And what does the future of Andrew Sorrell look like? We're going to jump into that. Uh, and if there's time, we're going to talk about the fact that courage is being rewarded in politics more than it ever has. We're living in a devastating time, crazy time to be alive. And people want their representatives to stand up, to stop the nonsense, uh, and to have a spine. And there's not a lot of that happening, but we're, we're seeing that the ones that do are rewarded, and Andrew is one of them. So we'll dive into that if there's time. If not, we'll cover that in the overtime. So before I jump into the content, though, I got to do my spiel. You guys watch this, you know my spiel. The spiel is, if you're depending on what podcast platform you're watching this on, whether it is uh, Rumble, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen, click the subscribe button. That way, uh, and then if there's a bell, click the bell. That way you get notifications each and every time we publish content so you're not missing out on anything. Do that. Uh, go on Facebook, Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, and share the podcast. Help us get it out every single week. Where we break the the listen record or the download record uh, because you guys are doing that. So please continue to share this stuff on social media. Help us get our message out there. People always ask, what can we do to help 1819 News? Well, you can sign up to become a member right there on the website. Click the button, become a member. You can do that, but you can also share content. That's free. That's easy for you guys to do. Um, and then if there's a, a place on your podcast platform to leave a five-star review uh, and, and tell everybody how much you love us because we know that you do. Uh, please do that because that helps us defeat the algorithms that hate people like me and they hate people like you. So that's how we beat them. Like, share, all that, comment, blah, blah, blah. All right. Without further ado, we're going to welcome in Andrew Sorrell, state auditor, Andrew Sorrell. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for 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 making it down. Oh, I got to say this. This is our 100th episode. How did I forget to say that? And so Andrew is the very first interview we ever did on 1819 News, the podcast, when he was in the state house and he was pushing constitutional carry, he came on to talk constitutional carry and certificate of need. So he was the first interview we ever did, and now he's the hundredth episode. So that's pretty neat, and I think it's fitting because of his conservative bona fides. So there, I teed you up even better. <laughs> well, I remember that first interview very well on the side of Interstate 65, and uh, it's, it's pretty cool to be back on for the hundredth episode. Glad y'all are still going. Yeah, me too. Always glad to be going. Right. If, if, if nothing else, if it's been a bad day, 
We're grateful that we're going. That's right. I'm an optimist. (laughs) Glass is half full and all that. Well, Andrew, uh, if you listen to any of my podcasts, and this is where you tell me, I listen to all of them, Brian. I listen to some of them, yes. Not, okay. not probably not all, but I do some, listen to some of them. You spelled some for all, but it's weird. <laughs> um, you'll know that we like story. We want to hear people's stories. We want, we want to know where people come from. We want to hear their history. And it's just weird how people's history usually ties into what it is that they're doing and why they're passionate. And so um, I want to hear, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Tell me about your parents. How did you get into politics? Hit me. So I had a funny story I would lead with a lot of times on the campaign trail. And I would I would speak to a room of 50 or 100 people. And I'd say, there's one thing I can share with you about myself that will instantly make everybody in here want to vote for me. And it's kind of caught everybody's attention. Like, oh, what's he about to say? And I would say, I was born in California. And they would just groan like, what? It's the last thing we thought you were going to say. I would say, look, I'm, I'm just joking. Like, I know that's not going to get your vote, but let me explain. I only lived there for six weeks, yeah. so nothing rubbed off on me. Yeah. And we were there for a very good reason. My dad is a preacher, retired, but he's a yeah. preacher. And he had a church in Northern California. So okay. we lived in Lakeport. I was born in Ukiah, which is where the hospital was. I've been back to visit there when I was 28. I went to spend about 10 years now that I went to visit there. But nonetheless, uh, dad was a preacher there. And then uh, I was born November 15th. By January, we had moved to Wisconsin and he took a job at Maranatha Baptist Bible College teaching. Dad's a PhD in Old Testament theology. So he was teaching some master's level programs at at Maranatha Baptist Bible College. And that's where we lived for the next five and a half years. So I was halfway through kindergarten. My dad had been laid off from Maranatha due to declining enrollment. And he was looking for another uh, ministry opportunity. And somebody from a church in Muscle Shoals, Alabama called and I remember I was so young at the time, you know, I was only, all I'd ever known was living in Wisconsin. And I remember asking my mom, is Alabama in the United States? Like, I wasn't even sure. It seemed like it was so far away. So she assured me that it was. We ended up moving down here. Dad took Faithway Baptist Church in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and we have been here ever since. So that's kind of my story of how we got here. Now, when I was running for the house, people would say, you know, are you from here? And I would say, well, yeah, since since kindergarten. They would say, oh, so you're not from here. Yeah. So no, I don't go back six generations in Alabama like a lot of people, yeah. but I've done a lot of traveling and I can honestly say there's nowhere I'd rather live than in Alabama. Yeah. I'm, I'm a transplant, the more recent than you. I tell people, I say, look, I am not, I ain't from around here. You're right. You got me. I'm also not a Yankee. I'm a Midwesterner. Huge difference. So just be easy. Um, I moved here nine years ago in December uh, but all of my children were born here. I have seven kids. And so I feel like that gives me some some rooting. And someone was a little bit confrontational with me about not being from Alabama. You're not even from here. Where are you from? Where are you from? It was, you know, one of those wonderful Republican meetings uh, that you go to. And anyway, I, mean, I wish I could tell you who it was that did this. It would actually make the story way more cool. But anyway, this very large person said that to me. And uh I said, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, it was in Wetumpka. It was at the Elmore County Republican thing. And I'm like, well, I live right down the street. No, but like, you're not from here. And I'm like, I mean, no, I'm not. I've lived, you know, and I said, let me explain. He goes, well, why would you move from Colorado to Alabama? And I'm like, that's a weird thing to ask. Like, I, like you, you would think that everyone would want to move to Alabama. If of course. Alabama the way that I do. Right. I said, look, have you ever seen those Cuban refugees that come over to America on like a chunk of wood? Okay. And they somehow get over here. And then it's like a Ted Cruz's dad type of a thing. You know what I mean? And like, this is the most ardent patriot on the planet because they fled communism and they, they grace the shores of the greatest nation in the history of the world. And they know it. 
And that was why they are ardent patriots. And, and, and I said, that was kind of like me, except I didn't come here on a, on a chunk of wood. I came you know, from Cuba. I, I came from Colorado to Alabama, but I love Alabama. I love the people. I love the culture. I love the place. Um, it's amazing. So all that to say, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> well, if you remember back to when Barack Obama was running for president, there was this whole controversy over his birth certificate. Where was he born? Yeah. Okay. Now, for president, that is important. You do have to be a yeah. U.S. citizen when you're born. I understand that. But I'm just trying to illustrate a point here. I remember listening to Rush Limbaugh one time on the radio, and he said, you know, of all the things to be upset with Barack Obama about, the one thing he couldn't control was where he was born. Yeah. Like, <laughs> let's focus on the other hundred stupid things he's done since yeah. he was born and since he ha- was able to make a decision for himself. But people can't help where they're from. And I also have to tell people, look, 20 years ago, you realize California had a Republican governor just 20 years ago. Yeah. Is that not mind blowing? Yeah. Like we, we think of California as like, it's just almost seceded from the rest of the United States. They're so liberal and so radical. But in the eighties, uh, California was almost still the land of Ronald Reagan. You yeah. know, he had been governor there 15, 20 years earlier. So it just wasn't the same back then. It didn't have the stigma back then that it, that it has today. But like I say, I'm not, not ashamed of where I was born, but live in Alabama now by choice. Love it here. Wouldn't yeah. live anywhere else. Amen. So you get to Alabama. What? What? How old were you when you got here? So I was halfway through kindergarten, so I just turned six. Yeah, that's. I mean, you're you're an Alabamian. I don't. You know. Well, thank I, I, I appreciate got, that. You know what? You. You're an Alabamian too. Hey, I'm gonna hey, go hey. ahead and award that we're to you. It's like participation <laughs> trophies. Just giving them out, unless you're voting. You didn't participate. <laughs> um. So Alabama, kindergarten, homeschool. No, uh, okay. good good guess, but no, a lot of people right. think that. No, I was actually public schooled. Okay. So went through Muscle Shoals from first grade through 12th grade. You know, going to Muscle Shoals, my teachers were conservative. My teachers were Christian. I remember skipping things like evolution in the textbooks. I remember anything that would be considered now like the woke agenda. Yeah. My teachers would just say, you know what, we're just not doing this chapter, and they just skip over it. And that that's how I remember growing up. That mm-hmm. was the Muscle Shoals that, that I grew up in when I went to school there. Um, then you have Muscle Shoals High School today, which until we passed the transgender bathroom bill just a year or two ago in the legislature, we had a transgender boy using the bathrooms in Muscle Shoals High School. So just to illustrate, I mean, I'm a young guy, I'm 37, right, yeah. as we're recording this. Hasn't been that long since I was in high school, yeah. but 19 years. In 19 years, how far has Muscle Shoals High School, you know, how, how much has it changed? So the public school systems are just not what they used to be. Yeah. But yes, I did go through Muscle Shoals, got a very good education. In fact, I've told a lot of people that, you know, when I made it to the University of North Alabama, uh, that I felt like a lot of my high school classes were more difficult than the college level classes. I was yeah. taking a lot of the advanced placement program classes and I was able to do something which I've never heard of anyone else doing. Now, I'm sure there's someone else in the world who has done this, okay? But as far as I know, and according to the conversation I've had with the current president at UNA, I'm the fastest person to ever graduate college there. I was able to get my four-year degree in less than two years. Wow. And I did that by testing out of a lot of classes through the AP program. You know, if you get a four or five on the test, then you test out of six credit hours. If you get a three, you test out of three credit hours. And I was able to test out of something like 20 credit hours. Then also while I was in high school, I think starting in 10th grade, I started going up to Northwest Shoals Community College. And my mother taught there. She taught nursing. So I I was, you know, free tuition for me. So I said, well, I'm going to go and start knocking some of these classes out. So I'd be taking biology in 10th grade or 11th grade or whatever it was. And I would go over to college at night and I would take a biology class there as well. Same thing with the math, took speech, you know, I was in 11th grade and knocked out so much college that I was never a college freshman. By the time I walked in the door, I was already a sophomore, had a full scholarship at the University of North Alabama. And I, I did the math and I said, boy, if I just take some overloads and go in the summers, I can cram three years into two years and be done. 
So that's what I did. I, I began college in August of 2004 and I finished in July of 2006. Wow. I dropped out of high school. <laughs> Your story is way cooler than mine. Well, the funny thing was now my brother, who actually, to be, to be honest, my brother is probably smarter than me. He yeah. was a national merit scholar. He was there in a full scholarship too. And he, he changed majors several times. He also did a lot with uh, music. He had some minors. So it, it took him a little bit longer. So it's not quite an apples to apples comparison, but I just find it funny. So I'll tell the story. My brother graduated high school three years before me, 2001 versus 2004, but we both graduated UNA the same year. So oh, wow. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, that is awesome. So um, tell us about your book business. I, I find that an interesting story. So what happened there was, you know, my brother is attending UNA on full scholarship, including textbooks, yeah. or so we thought. He got a $200 semester textbook scholarship. Well, as we know, $200 buys you about one college textbook, yeah. right? I mean, they're very, very expensive. So he had to come out of pocket for the rest of the books that he needed. And then he was very disappointed when he went to sell his books back to the bookstore at the end of the semester. They were offering him just pennies on the dollar. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, you paid $200? Okay, we'll give you 30 bucks. And he's like, 30 bucks? Like, that's crazy. Like, how did it possibly lose that much value? You're going to turn around and sell it to someone for 150 U's next semester, you know? Yeah. So Matthew thought, well, I'd be smarter to sell it on Amazon for 80 bucks. Yeah. So he did. But then he thought, well, if I can sell mine for 80 bucks, why don't I go buy my classmates' books for a little more than the bookstore is paying, like $40, and then sell those on Amazon for 80 bucks? Pretty smart, right? Yeah. Only one problem, Matthew didn't have any money. So he comes to his rich younger brother, all right? Now, I was, I was making the big bucks. I was working at Chick-fil-A. I was making $5.15 an hour, okay? And I'd saved up about $2,000. <laughs> That's right. And by the time you deduct taxes, car insurance, gasoline out of five fifteen an hour, there's like $4 an hour left. Yeah. So to save up $2,000, I had worked, you know, probably more than a semester of part-time work to build up that money. So it was yeah. a lot of money to me at the time. And Matthew proposed a partnership, a 50-50 partnership. I put the money up and help him sell the books and he'll go buy the books at the college. So I remember he left with this big green laundry basket and $2,000. And he comes home a couple weeks later, and it was like the end of the semester, exam times, so everyone's selling their books and everything. And he comes back, and he has he somehow has like a basket full of books and more cash than he started with. And I was like, what happened? Like, this is magical. How did you do this? Yeah. And he's like, I was just wheeling and dealing, man. I was like, I was buying a book for 40 bucks, and I knew a guy next semester was taking that class. I sold it to him for 80. And, and he's just like telling all these stories. And I was like, I have got to get in on this. Like, this is awesome. Yeah. And I remember my parents would like let me – almost skips kind of a strong word, but I, I would I would miss some high school in order to go over to, to UNA and sit outside of exams during the day and buy textbooks from people who were walking out. So I would I would go, say there's an economics exam, it's gonna be at you know 8.15 in the morning. So I would go sit outside the exam and as they finish their exam, they walk out with their book. Well, they're done with the class. Perfect yeah. time to hit them up. They're probably on their way to the bookstore to sell it. Yeah. And I would say, hey, listen, the bookstore is paying 50. I'll give you 55 cash right now. And people would be like, Okay, sure. So I'd buy 10 or 15 books sitting outside of a class. So I began doing this even in high school. Well, when I started going to UNA too, then it really ramped up. And by yeah. that point, we're turning it over. We're starting to make good profit and everything. So I remember there was one semester that my brother and I, and we hired a couple of our friends to help. We paid them like $2 a book to help us buy books. And we bought 856 books in four days and turned around, took them home, put them on Amazon and sold them a month later in January. And the business really started to grow, really started to do well. Then we got into internet. Uh, we built an internet college textbook buyback website, um, still exists, called Textbook Maniac. And that business grew very large. In 2010, we opened 
a brick and mortar store in Huntsville. We served Calhoun Community College and the University of Alabama in Huntsville, UAH. Uh, we were an off-campus store for both of those locations. Um, like I said, the business kind of boomed. We ended up with over 30 employees. We did $9 million in revenue at our peak. Uh, it was it just did really, really well. And so here we are, and I'm in my early 20s, and I'm running this like big business. I'm hiring all these people. I'm hiring a, a computer programmer and paying them like six figures. And I, I looked back and I was like, man, how did I get here? Like, this is so, so weird for me. <laughs> of course, there were a lot of struggles being so young and and I'm still living in Muscle Shoals. So I'm commuting to Huntsville to do this, you know. Yeah. But my local college already had like three off-campus bookstores. So we didn't yeah. want to be the four. So we went to UAH where there was only one. There was just less competition there. And I still own and operate the business today. It's called Infinity Books. We're just a mile or so from UAH. And the business is not quite what it used to be because books are now starting to go ebook. Like yeah. Pearson has a goal of like, we're going to be 100% ebook. Well, you can't, they don't need a middleman to sell their book. And then there's no buyback on an ebook. Yeah. So kids think they're saving money because instead of 200, it's only 150, but they don't get anything back at the end because you can't resell the ebook, yeah. you know? But the business, I would say, is in a gradual decline. But as long as it's profitable, we're going to keep running it. Yeah. Very cool. So you're entrepreneurial, obviously, uh, from a young age, don't you own other businesses as well? So I took the money from the textbook company and in 2012, I went in to sell a shotgun. I had a used shotgun. So I went to do a pawn shop in Florence and I said, Hey, I'd like to sell my shotgun. Like where else do you go to sell a used gun? Yeah. Right. You go to a pawn shop. So I walked in this pawn shop and I said, I'd like to sell this. You know, what will you give me for it? And they said, um, Oh, we'll loan you $150 on it. I said, no, I don't, I don't want to loan. I don't want to pawn it. I just want to sell it. Like, how much will you give me? And they said, no, 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 we don't, we don't do that. Like we don't, we don't just buy guns, but like, we'll give you a loan on it. I said, okay, well give me a loan on it. And then I just won't come back. Right. That's how pawn works. And then you're going to end up yeah. owning it. Anyway. That's how pawn works. If you don't come back, you just own it. Yeah. They're like, well, if we know you're not coming back, we're not going to give you a loan. I was like, this is the dumbest experience I've ever had. Like <laughs> it's like walking into a business you know, named like we buy gold and you go in there and like, oh, I'm sorry, we don't buy gold. Like that's, yeah. that's the experience I had. I was like, this is so dumb. Like, obviously this pawn shop should be buying my used gun yeah. for at least give me an offer. They could have said, we'll give you 50 bucks. I would have been offended by the offer, but at least they would have made me an offer. Yeah. I walked out of there and I thought somebody needs to open a good, legitimate pawn shop. You know, one that's not seedy and dirty and has a bad reputation in town. And like, Somebody needs to do this right. Yeah. And then I thought, well, I've got these profits from the book business. I'm single. Like, maybe I should do it. Yeah. So I bought a book on how to start a pawn shop, and I read it. it I don't remember the title. It was something like Pawn Shops for Dummies, some, yeah. something along those lines. And and I read about how hard it was going to be and how all the things you had to overcome. And, and I was like, oh, I can do this. That ain't no big deal. So we start the fall of 2012. We put together our paperwork, open our S Corporation, and we're, we're in business, right? Gold Guns and Guitars. That was the name. My partner came up with that. Thought that was a pretty clever name, Gold Guns and Guitars. Remind me a minute. I'll tell you a story about the name, okay? Okay. But um, it involves Billy Ray Cyrus. There's a little little teaser for you. All right. Mullet. Uh, but we, <laughs> we, we came up with the name, and then we bought a building. So I bought the building May 1st of 2013. And we began the remodel on the building, which proved to be way more expensive than what I thought. I, I ended up spending more remodeling the building than I spent purchasing the building. So that set us back with a very long remodel. Then we had to fill the entire store with inventory. We had never done this before. We had no relationships with manufacturers, wholesalers, anything. So trying to fill this store up with inventory was very difficult. There were several other pawn shops in the area that went out of business and we bought out their inventory. So we started with some there, but uh, basically we didn't know what we were doing. And uh, we, <laughs> we nearly failed before we even got started. 
And it was not until April 24th of 2015 that we had our grand opening. So it took two and a half years to get the doors open on this business. The business then proceeded to lose money for the next year and a half, which is very common for a new business. Almost yeah. all businesses are going to lose money when you first open them. And finally, it caught traction. And we were able to just wait it out. And I just kept saying, no, this is going to work. We're doing this right. Because I pulled up one day, and there was a mom getting out of Suburban with a whole bunch of little kids to go into my pawn shop to look at instruments. And I was like, yes, that's what I was going for. If, if a mom in a Suburban feels comfortable coming to my pawn shop, it's got the right image in town. Yeah. And- you know, people call me all the time like, oh, there's three police cars in your parking lot, man. What's going down? I'm like, they're probably shopping. Like, yeah. that's what they're normally there for. Like, yeah. all the law enforcement shops with us. Like, we love law enforcement, you know? Yeah. I, I love pulling up my pawn shop and seeing police in there. You know, and that, it keeps the riffraff out, and they're in there buying. So, yeah. that's great. So, that business proceeded to do very well. And by 2018, business was booming. So, I had an opportunity to buy out another pawn shop in Huntsville that was closing. And the owner, he owned both the building and the business. I said, well, I'm going to buy your business, but I will rebrand it under our name. We're going to be Gold Guns Guitars in Huntsville, but we will rent the building from you. So it was already kind of set up for a pawn shop, which was nice. So we were able to open that one in just six months. So we went from two and a half years to six months for our second one, because by this point, we knew what we were doing, right? That business also took about two years to get going, but um, when COVID hit, Man, ever since 2020, both businesses have just boomed. It's never let up. People are still buying guns. Um, I think so many people came in. We had so many first-time customers in 2020 with all the the rioting, the presidential election, COVID, the stimulus checks. There were just so many reasons people were going and buying guns. And we, we expanded our customer base, and both businesses are still doing very, very well. I'll tell you the Billy Ray Cyrus story in just a second, but I want to also mention I opened a third company. Uh, which is a, a real estate investment company. So I own 11 rental properties scattered throughout Alabama. Most of them are in the Huntsville area because um, I try to focus on Baldwin County and Madison County, two fastest growing counties in yeah. the state. Really good place to own rental property. I still self-manage all of those, yeah. which uh, my wife is like begging me to hire a property manager because yeah. she says I'm too busy or something. I don't know where yeah. she gets these ideas from, but she thinks I'm too busy. <laughs> but uh, I'm about there. I'm about, I'm about ready to turn them over to somebody and let them go. But uh, that's the other thing I do. So basically, I've taken the profits from the book company and used it to open two other companies. Wow. Well, and that's one of the things I think is important when you look at people who are going to go down to Montgomery and do something. What have they done? Right. Yeah, and right. and um people that you see who have done and, and, and achieved incredible things there, you know, that's Elon Musk hiring thing. He's like, I don't care where you went to college. I don't care about any of that. Mm. If someone has a pattern of doing extraordinary things, it's not going to stop when they come work for you. And so um, that to me, I'm more comfortable, you know, electing people who have a business background, who've achieved things. And obviously you at a very young age. Um, so I think that's great. Uh, and, and, and it helps you understand, you know, the fiscal side of, of, of what's going on in government. So, what, um, why on earth would you get into politics when you're, you know, 20 or 30 or whatever you are swimming in money? What, 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 uh, well, that actually came, the, pol the political involvement was an offshoot of the business involvement. And I'll tell you how that happened in just a second, but I promised you a Billy, Billy Ray, Ray Cyrus, Cyrus story. story. Yeah, so, yeah, I don't want to forget that. Yeah. So Billy Ray Cyrus was in town recording at a, at a studio in, I think it was in Sheffield. He was, he was there recording. He went out to lunch, drove by my business. And I heard this from the person who owns the studio. He drives by and he says, he sees our sign, Gold Guns and Guitars. And he thought, that's a really cool name. Like, that's just really catchy. We should turn that into a song. So he goes back to the studio and he records this song. And in the song, he sings about gold guns and guitars. 
Now he messed it up. I think he sings about Gatun's Gar's gold and we could he messed the order up, but it was it was it was yeah. our our name, right? And I thought I heard this that this song was gonna be released and I thought, hey, this is gonna be a big hit. I, I deserve some royalties, right? You yeah. know, or something. Um the song was a complete and total flop, never went anywhere. But you can hear it. It's on YouTube. It's called Chicken Man. I have no idea how that equates to Gold Guns Guitars, but the whole chorus is about Gold Guns Guitars. And he got that. He wrote that after seeing our sign in Florence. So, All right, guys, you now have a homework assignment before you come back and watch next week. We need you to watch Chicken Man on YouTube with the That's right. late, great Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> well, you... you, you uh, you well anyway you said you had the billy ray cyrus story and there it is that is a very interesting one and it's interesting that he would and you almost wonder if he moved the words around so that he could get around any royalties if it did take <laughs> off you know anyway yeah okay that's so possible politics how you said that business played a part in you getting into politics tell us about that it did so my parents were not very political they're always been a voter never missed an election kind of people you know raised us to vote as soon as we turn 18 go register to vote we expect you to go vote primaries generals municipal elections everything your duty is to vote so that's how we were raised but it wasn't like my parents were grooming me to run for political office and yeah. thought never crossed their mind but when i was working my textbook business i would sit in my parents screened porch we had a little air conditioner in there and i would be listing books on amazon and you know we stored them in a shed out in the backyard and out of just like boredom i turned on the radio and who do i listen to glenn beck rush limbaugh sean hannity you know mark levin Dave Ramsey was on. I mean, I would listen to talk radio all day long. And it started to kind of help shape my political philosophy. So then I wasn't just voting Republican because I was a Christian. I was voting Republican because I understood a whole more wide breadth of issues. Now, at the time, most of the emphasis was on federal politics. And it's funny because now I pay very little attention to federal politics. I'm like a state-focused guy and have been for the last five or six years. I'm just so much more interested in what's going on in the state level. I follow the big national stories. You yeah. know, I watched the interview with our new House Speaker, for instance, with Sean Hannity, things like that. But I prefer Alabama news. But back then, the federal stuff was interesting, and that's all that the big guys like Rush Limbaugh were talking about. So in 2009, I was at the bowling alley, and a friend of mine gets a text, do you want to volunteer on this gubernatorial campaign in Alabama? And he's like, well, I don't have time. But he knew I kind of liked politics. He said, Andrew, do you want to volunteer? Do you want to be Colbert County Coordinator? And I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds fun. So I got in. My candidate didn't even make the runoff. Uh, proceeded to help a congressional candidate. He also lost. Basically, everybody we volunteered for in the first couple of years, my brother and I, lost. And finally, Matthew was like, I think we're doing something wrong. You know, like maybe we need to go to the Leadership Institute and learn how to run a political campaign. Yeah. And I thought, that's a great idea. So we signed up for a week-long campaign management school. And by the way, I've called Leadership Institute back every time I've won an office. They keep track of how their graduates do. And mm -hmm. I called them back and made sure they updated their records and knew that I was state auditor now and all that yeah. stuff. And they really appreciate that. But I remember walking down that hallway, and they have all these photos up of people who went on to be in Congress or governor or whatever, and they were all trained at the Leadership Institute. And I just remember thinking, that'd be cool if that's me one day. But that's about all the thought I ever put into yeah. it. And I, I wanna also point out that I did not go to the future candidate school. Yeah, I went to the campaign management school. In my, in my mind at that time, I was not thinking that I was doing this to run myself. I was gonna help other people win campaigns. Yeah, I was a businessman. I was too busy to run for political office. You know, Plus I was like 23 or 24 at the time. So we go to this school, which was very intensive. It was like 8 o'clock to 8 o'clock some days. I mean, it was very long, very intensive, really, really excellent teachers. It's run by Morton Blackwell, who's been in the RNC for like 40 years yeah. from Virginia. 
And I got to, I bumped into Morton at the 2020 RNC convention when I was Alabama's delegation chairman for Trump. And I told him the story. I said, I just want to tell you, I appreciate your school that you started. It really helped me. And, uh, you know, I'm in the state house now and everything. We had, we had a great conversation. It was very cool. But we came back home from that, started managing other races. And I remember in 2014, things started to change. We started to win. I remember State Senator Tim Melson, though he wasn't a senator at the time, he was a candidate for State Senate. And he comes up to me and he goes, hey, my brother-in-law, Joe, is running for county commission. He lost last time, something like 60-40. Can you help Joe? Like, no one's willing to help Joe because nobody thinks Joe can win. And so my brother and I said, we like Joe. We'll help Joe. So we managed Joe's campaign. I remember we had him host a fundraiser. We designed all his mailers. Um, we It was a low-budget campaign. So, you know, if we couldn't afford as many mailers as we wanted, we'd go out at night and we would stuff literature in people's newspaper boxes. Not their mailboxes. That's illegal. But stuffing newspaper boxes is legal. So we'd drive all over the county at night and stuff people's newspaper boxes. We were doing anything we could think of to get this guy to win. And I remember running a poll and Joe was up like 51-49. I thought, we might actually win this race. Yeah. Sure enough, election day rolls around and Joe wins 53-47. We beat an incumbent Democrat, three-term incumbent Democrat, and everybody was very excited and a little bit impressed that we had kind of pulled this off. And I was like, man, we kind of put our political training to some good use here. The next project we took on was the county commission chairman. And I remember we ended up running against the Chamber of Commerce president. And with, again, less money, less resources, like anyone from the outside looking in would say, your candidate's going to lose. Uh, we managed to win that one 60-40. We, we participated in municipal elections. I helped change out the mayor of Florence. We changed out several of the, uh, what I think were corrupt city councilmen. Um, they passed a, an ordinance, which I, I just still offends me to say, it's still law today in Florence, that unless you, you cannot retail fireworks in the city of Florence unless you are a resident wholesaler. Okay, so if you own a wholesale fireworks company in the city of Florence, you can retail fireworks. Well, there's only one, and it happens to be billionaires, right, yeah. who had also donated to these political campaigns like a month before. And I just thought, I don't know if there was a deal made, but it looks bad. But yeah. even if there wasn't a deal made, you should never pass a rule that you can't retail fireworks unless you're a wholesaler. That's a stupid anti-free market type rule. Yeah. In fact, I thought about selling some fireworks in my pawn shop just to see if they could catch me on that and take it to court. But I've never yeah. done it. But it's crossed my mind. But anyway, we took on all kinds of political fights. Then we started taking on the tax fights. There were all these property tax votes. I remember Baldwin County had one. Lawrence County had one. Well, then they came to our area. And by the way, the tax increases were mostly losing around the state. Well, the problem was in Colbert County, there was a tax increase, and it passed 70% to 30% in 2013. It was a three-mill property tax increase. So they got greedy, and they said, hey, if we pass it 70-30, we can probably pass another one, right? So they tried to pass another one in 2015. But mm. this time, we got organized, and we called it the farm tax because it was mostly a tax on rural farmers. So we said, stop the farm tax. We opened a pack. We raised six or $8,000. And boy, we just raised cane all over the county about this. And to make a long story short, we took it from passing 70-30 the first time to the voters rejecting it 87-13 to 13 the second time. Complete flip-flop. And three times the voter turnout in ours versus the previous. And that's when I understood how much power a good campaign really has. You can change the minds of voters when you inform them, when you tell them the facts. And I remember this somewhat sassy uh, TV reporter interviewing me outside the Colbert County Courthouse. And she's like, what is it? Like, why don't you want this tax? Do you hate Colbert County's children? And I said, no, 
I'm protecting Colbert County's children. The last time we gave them a tax increase in 2013, the next two years, their state rankings actually slipped lower. So apparently when we give them more money, they do worse. So I'm protecting Alabama's children. She didn't know what to answer to that. <laughs> but we had our facts down. Yeah. Then I participated. Jackson County had a sales tax increase fight. They said, will you come over here and help us defeat this 1% sales tax increase? So we beat that one. Then we went to the city of Athens. And in Athens, they had a property tax increase that was extremely well-funded. They needed to build a new high school. They said they needed a $100 million tax increase to do it. Okay. The superintendent, who, by the way, I knew was corrupt at the time. I was proven correct later. He's actually in jail now. Uh, he was fudging their enrollment data. Mm. He was saying, oh, we don't have any absences today, you know, because the more people that are in school, the more revenue the school actually gets from yeah. the state and federal government. So he was faking their enrollment and their, their attendance data, and he ended up going to jail for it. But these are the type people that we were up against. The Vote Yes PAC is being funded by the construction companies that stand to benefit and will get the contracts to build the new school, right? Pretty, I mean, not again, not illegal, but it just smells bad. So we're out there trying to raise, you know, private donations from just average ordinary citizens to tell people why they should vote no on this tax. We're like, look, the city of Athens has enough money to build a new school. We don't need a tax increase to do this. And this is a big one. This was like a 10 mil property tax increase. It was huge. So election day rolls around. We defeat the increase. It was something like 63-37. We beat it. Again, against overfunded opposition, all of the local mayor, the city council, everybody was for this tax increase. That's what we were up against. We were able to defeat that as well. Mm. And another problem that I noticed was that taxpayer money was being expended to promote the, the ballot referendum, which was not illegal in Alabama because we checked. It, is, it was not illegal to take taxpayer resources from the city council, the school board, the schools themselves, and use it to promote the tax increase. That was perfectly legal. So I said, now, wait a minute. What if the city council spent money promoting their own reelection? That would be illegal. But the city council can promote or oppose a ballot referendum with public money, and it's legal in Alabama. We don't need public money in our elections. That would be like if the governor had access to $10 million for her reelection campaign. That's unthinkable. But yeah. that's what was being allowed for ballot referendums. So when I got in the legislature, we got that changed. I remembered that, and it was like eight years later that that, that bill actually and it took effect January 1st this year. So I worked very hard to pass that. The bill, like many of my good bills that passed, did not have my name on it when it passed. But I worked with some very uh, high-ranking yeah. legislative members, and we got that done. And even Speaker McCutcheon liked and appreciated the bill because he said, I remember this happening. Because, you know, he represented a piece of Limestone County. Yeah. And one year when I introduced the bill— Without me even asking, he saw what the bill was, and he added his name on as a co-sponsor and said, this needs to be fixed. This isn't right. So we, we got that fixed. But those are just examples of some of the early fights that I was in that kind of got me warmed up to politics. Interesting. And so what, uh, what made you move away from strategy to being the person, the guy? Well, in 2014, Democrat state representative, 24-year incumbent, uh, who had gotten to draw his own district in 2010, uh, the deal was... Uh, story I heard, look, I wasn't there. You hear these stories, you don't know. Oh, yeah. But the story I heard <laughs> right, was that Hubbard was a few votes short on redistricting. So he, he needed like three more votes. So he went to three Democrats in the Shoals and he said, I will let y'all draw any district you want. You carve it up. And it was a legislator who told me this story. So it's a pretty legitimate source. You can draw any district you want, but you had to vote for the redistricting plan when you're done. One of those Democrats was my opponent, Marcel Black. 
So Marcel drew himself a humdinger. I mean, he went up into Florence and he looped in the minority area of West Florence. He went over to Lawrence County. He looped in Red Bank and Town Creek and Cortland and North Cortland. And he's pulling all these Democrat areas from two counties into the more um, uh, Republicanish area of Colbert County. And he thought, man, I'm going to be good for the next 10 years here on this redistricting. Well, by 2014, he was reelected, but he was reelected with 59 point something percent of the vote. It was less than 60%. Yeah. And I remember thinking, that race is winnable for a Republican in 2018. We just got to find the right candidate. So as a campaign manager at the time, I set out trying to find the right candidate. Mm. And I remember asking my dad if he was interested. I was looking around all over for a good candidate. And I was like, I can help you win this race. Like we're starting to win some of these. I can help you. And then somebody eventually said to me, if you're so passionate about it, why don't you run? And I was like, well, I'm 28 years old. I'm single. I'm still living in a one-bedroom apartment. I mean, like, I don't know. I just didn't steam like I would yeah. be the best candidate for that office. But sometimes the best candidate is the person who wants it the most. Yeah. So I decided along about 2015 that I was going to run, especially after I went down to Montgomery and I was lobbying my legislator, Marcel Black. I was telling Marcel about there was a bill going through the legislature that was going to negatively impact my company. And me and my two business partners went down there. We went to the committee hearing. And Marcel invited us into his office and we talked to him. Now, Marcel is a true gentleman. I mean, he really was. He treated us very nicely. But at the end of it, he basically told me, I'm not going to vote the way you want me to. And I just remember thinking, we've got to change out our representative. Like, mm. he's a nice guy, but he doesn't represent the majority of the population in, in pretty conservative Colbert County. Yeah. Okay. So I had seen Larry Stutz win. He beat Roger Bedford by 67 votes in 2014. So our area, I knew it was winnable. So I knew three years out I was going to run. Yeah. So then I met my wife. I think you've heard that story before. Uh, in 2016, I met my wife on a bus in Italy. Uh, we were both on the same church history tour. And I remember her asking me, are you interested in politics? And I was like, that's a pretty cool first question to ask me. Yeah. So we got talking. We were both supporting the same candidate for president. And you know, by the end of the trip, we're kind of talking about getting married. And after 34 days of knowing each other, we got back to America. I went and visited her family in South Carolina. Uh, we went ahead and reserved the church to get married in the next summer. So, oh. I mean, we knew really quick, really fast. We made the decision. Like, basically, her dad talked to me, and then when I went home for the weekend, he said, Hannah, I think that's the one for you. Oh. So I asked Hannah, I said, are you okay with the first year of our marriage being me running for office? And she said, let's do it before we have kids. Yeah. I thought, okay. And now having kids, I understand. <laughs> that's probably pretty good advice. <laughs> kids, yeah. kids are awesome, but they take a lot of time. They do. And one of your kids got you elected to statewide office. So it worked out. <laughs> you know, that's the the funny thing. I remember some people in politics telling me that, you know, you need to have kids if you want to run for higher office. They were kind of joking, but halfway serious. Yeah. You know, and, and I remember thinking, well, maybe we should put off kids until after the next election. And then Hannah said, look, there's always going to be some reason to delay having kids, but we'll never regret having kids. Yeah. And so we, I agreed and we went ahead and, and, um, and started, you know, having kids. We've had two kids. And yeah, the first one ended up starring in my TV commercials for yep. State Otter. And that commercial, I'm sure we'll get to that part of the story later, but it moved me up 12 points in four days in the polling. So it was an incredibly powerful commercial. Yeah, that's awesome. But yeah, I basically got home from my honeymoon and we started knocking doors for State House. Wow. So you get in the State House. When, when did you decide? And again, I mean, you had a reputation for being um, kind of a, a wide herb type. Uh, I don't know what the, uh, maybe there's a better terminology for it, but um, you weren't going to do what was quote unquote expected by leadership. You were going to do what you felt that your district sent you there to do. Um, fiscal responsibility, all of these things. Um, and you can highlight the actual 
you know, but I, I, if I remember correctly, was it three out of the four years you stood by yourself against the budgets or you at least voted no on the budgets and the budget? What, what, what was the breakdown there? So first of all, the reason I went to Montgomery and didn't just quote, get in line was yeah. because Montgomery never wanted me there in the first place. Yeah. Montgomery didn't help me get there. There were very few groups in Montgomery who supported me. Most all of them supported my opponent who was handpicked by Marcel Black to run against me. So Marcel Black convinced a fellow named Humphrey Lee to run for state house as a Democrat against me. Yeah. Some of our local Republicans who are not fans of my politics, who are Republicans, convinced Humphrey, instead of running as a Democrat, you should run against Sorrell in the Republican primary. Yeah. So I end up running in a primary against a guy who was literally recruited by the Democrat I'm trying to replace to run as a Democrat. That's my primary opponent. <laughs> but he got all the Montgomery support, but I got 77% on primary day because I did the thing he failed to do. And that was, I went and talked to the voters and asked them for their vote. And then I did have help from Montgomery to win the general election. It was very close. I got 52%. It was the closest state house race in 2018. We flipped that district. It had been Democrat for 140 years. So when I walked into Montgomery, I didn't feel like I owed Montgomery anything. Um, and I honestly, I was there because the people voted for me. And you got to realize that, like, you are there to represent your district. You're not there to be a part of a team or to, you know, do what leadership tells you. None of those reasons are why you say that you're running. You yeah. want to run to represent your district. So when votes came up that affected my district and I voted for my district, people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing what we all said we were going to do when we were campaigning. I was so confused by it all. Yeah. So the first big vote we have, of course, is the gas tax. And um, you got labeled pretty quickly which way you were going to go. I mean, there was no you know, introductory welcome Montgomery. And I thought there was going to be like some, some welcoming parties, some little cocktail reception. No, it was like, all right, you got elected gas tax. Let's talk gas tax. Yeah. And I was like, well, interesting. You bring the gas tax up. Uh, I pulled the gas tax and I got 600 responses in my telephone poll and 88% of them recommended I vote. No, I may be new to state politics, but I'm not stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to have my first vote be against 88% of my district. Plus, I'm also philosophically opposed to higher taxes. Yeah. So there's two really good reasons here. Now, let me be clear. We needed help. Our roads were in terrible shape. Yeah. Like I wasn't arguing like my roads are great in my district. No, I wasn't saying, of course, there's more money needed for roads all over the state. Some of the things that they were saying were true. We hadn't had a gas tax increase since 1992. In fact, gas and the cars are getting better mileage now. So we're not getting as much revenue off the, and there's more cars on the road with better mileage. Yeah. And all the, all the points they're making, a lot of those points were true. But here's what I said. Um, we've got money in the budget to just redirect to roads. We don't have to raise taxes in order to do that. Yeah. And I also said, I will even be willing to vote for a tax increase on gasoline if we have a tax decrease on, you name it, I don't care what it is, property tax, grocery tax, whatever. Reduce grocery tax by 300 million, give 300 million more to roads, I'm in. That's that's a that's a neutral and we, we solve problems. Yeah. People would say, look, they, I'd love to save money on my groceries, right? And they would say, hey, we need better roads, and we could kill two birds with one stone there. And that was the backup plan. If they couldn't get the straight-up gas tax through, that's what they were going to do is some kind of offset thing. But they ended up getting the votes, and they passed the gas tax. And I voted no on it. And I remember it was being debated on the House floor. And debated, I use that word very loosely because it was not a debate. It was a cheerleading session for the gas tax. It was one person after another after another going to the mic, going to the well, I voted against the 1992 gas tax, and it was the worst decision I ever made. I'm, I'm glad I have the opportunity to right that wrong and vote for this big gas tax. And I was like, what am I listening to? Yeah. I, I just couldn't believe it. This went on for hours. 
And after like three or four hours of this, nobody, not a single person had been to the microphone to speak against the gas tax. And I knew pretty much how everybody else was voting. I was brand new there. There were a few people who voted no that I didn't, I'd never talked to them or whatever. Yeah. But, but I basically could name you over half of the people that were going to vote no. Some of the veteran legislators, and I thought, surely they're about to go down there and voice their opinion and say that they are against this yeah. on, on the floor. Nobody did. Now, later in the legislature, I learned that, honestly, going to the floor— and bloviating really doesn't change anybody's mind. That's yeah. one of the disappointing things about being in the legislature. You yeah. picture like the Mr. Smith goes to Washington moment, you go yeah. to the mic and you make a good point and everyone agrees and swaps their vote. Yeah. Very rare I ever saw that happen. Those votes are, are decided long before you ever get to the floor, you know? Yeah. But after three or four hours, I couldn't handle it anymore. So I hit the speak button and, you know, the speaker called me, uh, Representative Sorrell from Colbert County. And I went down to the well and I spoke for about two minutes. And I, the first thing I said was, Mr. Speaker, I rise in opposition to this bill. And everybody in the room stopped talking. And they're just like turning. I just remember people turning and looking at me like, who is this crazy guy going down to speak against the gas tax? And I remember some of the Democrats like starting to like, shh, 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 everybody quiet down, quiet down, quiet down. We want to listen to this. And everyone's just on the edge of their seat like, what is he going to say? Yeah. And I went through my reasons for voting against the gas tax, including the ones I just named off to you. My district doesn't support it. There's other ways to fund it. What, whatever it was that I said. I don't even remember yeah. what I said. It was not my best speech as a politician, but it was probably one of the most impactful because I was the only person doing it. Yeah. And my wife was sitting in the gallery, and there's all these lobbyists sitting around her, and they don't know who she is. And they are just ripping me to shreds. They're like, look at this young buck. We're going to teach him a lesson, all, all that kind of. Yeah. She's like taking like, oh, really? She's right now like, okay, got to tell Andrew, this lobbyist said such and such, you know? <laughs> and I still remember who those people are today. Wow. You know? But some of the people were like, man, he's got some guts. I can't believe he's doing this. Yeah. And I get done speaking. And you want to guess what happened when I finished speaking? Mm. There was a big round of applause. I couldn't believe it. Even the people who were voting for the gas tax, a lot of them were applauding because they couldn't believe I was crazy enough to do it. Yeah. And the Democrats were applauding. And I got a lot of respect that day from other members just for having the courage to go down to the well and actually say what, what I believed in. Now, after I spoke, Representative Tommy Haynes also went to the well and spoke against it. And as best I remember, we were the only two that went down and spoke against it. If, if I'm forgetting somebody, I'm sorry, it's not intentional, but the, yeah. we're the only two that I remember speaking against it. So the gas tax went on to pass, but that kind of charted my course in the legislature. And from that point on, I just realized, like, Montgomery's not here to be my friend. Montgomery's never going to agree with me or understand why I'm here, what I'm doing. Yeah. And I'm just here to represent my district. And, you know, if I don't ever come back, I still got to serve four years now by my house. That's pretty cool. Not yeah. very many people get to do that. Yeah. So my next project was constitutional carry. Representative Isaac Horton had carried this bill for four years, but he was not running for re-election. He ran for circuit judge, so I knew nobody was going to be carrying the bill. So I determined to introduce it myself. So I went around, I got seven co-sponsors on the bill, and I introduced the bill. And I remember having a meeting with the speaker, and he was like, Andrew, not only does the full body not support your bill, but really, the Republican caucus doesn't even support your bill. Like, there is no support for this bill. And I was kind of mad, and then I was like, He's also kind of right. <laughs> there really isn't any support for this bill. So I determined that I was going to build support for constitutional carry. Yeah. And I began doing that. I, I talked to every Republican. Some of them I'd spend 20 minutes with. Some of them I'd spend, I'd spend two hours with them if they want to talk about it. 
I remember sitting in uh, Representative Treadway's office. Now, he was the chairman of public safety, and public safety, that's where the bill went to die every year. You know, it never came up. And I remember having just really good discussion. I actually ended up becoming friends with Treadway. I really liked the guy to this day. And Treadway is somebody that he would actually listen to facts and you could say, no, look, the crime statistics are not worse after constitutional carry. Look, the pistol permit funds may drop in the first couple of years, but after that they rebound. Giving him all these statistics and facts on constitutional carry. And his mind slowly began to change on the issue. And my second year, I had something like, it was low 20s, like 22, 23 co-sponsors, something like that, including my first member of leadership, who was Representative Connie Rowe, mm-hmm. who Connie and I are friends. Now, she wouldn't agree with my style and how I approach a lot of things, mm-hmm. but on a lot of the issues, she was actually right on. Yeah. And she did me a number of favors in the legislature. She'd pick my bill. She was on rules committee. She'd pick my bills and help me get them to the floor and things like that. So she was, she was very helpful to me. But one of the most useful things she did was she co-sponsored my bill. And I hear she took some heat for it as well. She, she yeah. told me that. My third year, I come back, and I've lost several of my co-sponsors. So April Weaver's left to go work in the Trump administration. Matt Friday won a statewide judgeship. And I, I forget who all up, but several people had just left. So I lost a few of my co-sponsors. Yeah. So I picked up four or five more, but I'd lost a few out the back end. And But year three is where I determined to—I I was like, I'm running out of time. I have to press this issue. And when you first arrived in Montgomery, you don't know the rules. You don't know the way around. So— uh, in the couple of years I was there, I learned the rules yeah. and I figured out a way to get a vote on constitutional carry because I knew if I could force a vote, it would be very tough for Republicans to vote against constitutional carry if they actually had to take a position on it. Yeah. So I waited for a gun bill to come to the floor and I got constitutional carry redrafted as a floor amendment. And I told everybody, I'm going to bring constitutional carry and we're going to have a vote on it. And there's really nothing you can do about it. You can vote to table it, but the vote's recorded, or you can vote to accept it and the vote's recorded. Either way, there's going to be a recorded vote, and everyone in Alabama is going to know where everybody in the House stands on constitutional carry. Yeah. And I knew leadership wouldn't pull the bill off the floor because they really wanted the bill. It was a lifetime carry permit bill they had been working on for years. They desperately yeah. wanted this bill. So it was a perfect position. I won't tell all the inside baseball details on this podcast, but I will say that an offer was made to me that was too good to turn down, and I accepted it. And basically the offer was, don't do the amendment, and we will help you pass the bill next year. And there were a multitude of witnesses. Um, I remember Connie being in on that conversation, many others. And I said, you know what? This is a fair offer. I'm going to take that because I also knew that if we could vote on it in 2022, what happened in 2022? The elections. Yeah. So I want to vote on this right before the Republican primary in 2022. That's yeah. the perfect time to have a vote on it, right? So I took the deal. Leadership kept their word. Yeah. They did bring the bill up in 2022. Uh, Representative Shane Stringer was the one who ended up carrying the bill, not me. That was um, partly by suggestion of leadership, but it was also something that I agreed to uh, very reluctantly, but I did because I felt like I was falling on my sword for the cause because. Uh, it was clear to me that there were people who would vote for constitutional carry if I wasn't the one carrying it. Yeah. And it shouldn't be that way. You should, you should never vote based on whether or not you like the sponsor. You should vote based on the contents of the bill. Yeah. But nonetheless, Shane Stringer had been fired for his support of constitutional carry. He was a sheriff's deputy. His sheriff fired him for supporting the bill. And he had literally like bled for the cause. He lost a very good high paying job because he supported this bill in the legislature. And there was so much sympathy amongst the caucus for Shane that I knew Shane would be the best person to pass the bill. So I made a deal with Shane, keep me involved, don't water the bill down, and I'll let you carry it. And Shane and I are good friends to this day. Wow. The bill hits the floor. And if you noticed, 
once enough Republicans had hit the yes button to where you knew the bill was going to pass, like there was obviously enough votes the bill was going to pass, there were about 10 Republicans who were like, okay, well, if it's going to pass anyway, I'll vote for it. I want to be on, I may as well get the credit for it. And they hit the yes button. And I know that if it had been close, they would have hit the no button. Yeah. But to this day, and then what do they do? They run out and put it on their mailers. I, I strong support of constitutional carry for my reelection. I'm like, yeah. whatever. I know exactly who you are, but I don't care. The bill passed. I'm happy. Took effect January 1st. And we were able to return Alabamians some of their constitutional rights. That's good. And uh, that I remember Scott Beeson telling me stories of how he was trying to get that passed like 14 years before that. And so it's yes. something that's continued to come up. Support from Alabamians has always been there. Sheriff's Association had always worked against it. Um, and, you know, we wrote about it in 1819 News. They were actually working with Moms Demand Actions to try and kill it. Yes. Uh, which is a whole nother thing. But um, we've got, uh, we're limited here. So quickly go through, you, you have the, the big con carry win. You got some other wins, mm-hmm. um, run for, uh, state house, uh, second term or state auditor. How'd you come to that decision? And what do you do? Very tough decision. There was a particularly hard controversial vote I cast in the legislature. And it was one that it was a Republican leadership member in the Senate. It was his bill and the governor was supporting it. And everybody who was anybody was supporting this bill. And not only did I vote no on the bill, I used a procedural trick to try to help kill the bill. And that made everyone furious. And they just, they just kind of lost their mind. And I remember (laughs) a very high ranking person in Montgomery coming to me that day. And it was the last day of session. And this person told me, you just ruined your political career. That's what he told me. Yeah. And I said, how? 80% of my district is against this bill. And it was the bill that, that would take away your vote to write for your state, uh, your right to vote for your state school board member. It was going to yeah. let the governor appoint them, right? Yeah. And I was opposed to the bill because my district was opposed to the bill. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, you know, it doesn't ruin my political career to vote with 80% of my district. That doesn't yeah. make any sense to me. So on the way home, I called my wife and I talked to her the entire way home from Montgomery. And I just vented. I was so frustrated with the legislature. And I said, I got half a mind to run statewide in 2022. Just just to prove them wrong. Yeah. Now, I wasn't thinking state all. I wasn't thinking anything really at that point. I was just saying it out of frustration. Yeah. But interestingly enough, um, I became friends with Jim Ziegler. Uh, Jim was kind of a controversial figure in Montgomery, very conservative. He would, he would, he would. You know, as Ed Henry used to put it, he would light the dynamite, drop it over the boat, and let it explode and just kind of see what bottom dwellers floated up. Yeah. That was kind of the Jim Ziegler style. He writes for 1819 News now. <laughs> he does. He sure does. I, I enjoy reading his articles. But Jim Jim wasn't one to back away from a fight. Yeah. But anyway, I got to be friends with Jim, and I said, what is it that this position actually does? And he explained, well, you know, we audit the state's property. $1.3 billion worth of taxpayer property is tracked by the state auditor's office. And serves on the board of adjustment. So if you have a claim against the state, you know, the state can't be made a party to any lawsuit. But if you do have a valid claim against the state, you can put it in with the board of adjustment. And then you serve on the Penny Trust Fund Board. We actually had that meeting this morning in Treasurer Boozer's office, and I can go into that if we have time. We don't. Um, okay. And then the Board of <laughs> Registrars, you know, appointing Board of Registrars in 66 out of 67 counties, very big That's responsibility. A big deal. Yes. And just got done doing those. Changed out six or eight registrars for the most part. I kept them. They were, they were good people doing a great job. There were a few underperformers yeah. um, that I, you know, I honestly asked the Secretary of State's office, who are my underperformers? And I replaced them because that's the right thing to do for the taxpayers of Alabama. Didn't yeah. make me very popular. Probably was going to cost me some votes in 2026, but it was the right thing to do. But basically, I got interested in the position, and I knew it was going to be an open seat. 
and I wanted a chance to run. And my consultant tried to talk me out of it. And he said, well, look, at least run a poll and see where you're at. Well, there were five candidates at the time. So I run this poll and I'm in fifth. I was, I don't remember, it was like low single digits. It was like 4%. And he's like, well, if this doesn't convince you not to run, I think this is a pretty clear answer. And I said, no, I still want to run for state auditor. And he was like, well, if you're crazy enough to do it looking at this poll, then go for it. Yeah. So we did. And, you know, I, I came out with a really, really good television ad, you know, me explaining the state auditor's position to my six-month-old daughter. She, yeah. she was cute. She did a great job. And I raised more than double the previous fundraising record for state auditor and had a lot of money to go up on TV and boosted my name ID. And I ended up winning the runoff about 58 to 42 and uh, didn't even have a Democrat opponent in the general. Yeah. But in the general, one thing that's interesting is of all the people who had opposition statewide— I actually got the highest percentage. Yeah. So for all of the people who said, you're too conservative, you you make too many people mad in Montgomery. Well, I'll tell you what, the voters must like and support what I stand for because I got the highest percentage of any statewide yeah. candidate in Alabama that had opposition. So that yeah. was very vindicating to me. And I want to cover that in our overtime. That's exactly what I want to cover um, uh, is the fact that all you've ever heard is, hey, you got elected in a Democrat flip. You know, you need to go towards the middle, go towards the middle, go towards the middle. You're rocking the boat. You're rocking the boat. You're rock, you're, you're you get in your political career and now you're in statewide office. So we're going to talk about courage being rewarded uh, in the overtime segment. <clears throat> you have any any last words in our uh, whatever this is the normal section <laughs> of the podcast that's not overtime? <laughs> Just want to say what an honor it is to serve as state auditor. I mean, it's I pull up in the avenue of flags. I get out. I walk into the Capitol. I'm just like, what am I doing here? And I'll tell you a quick story that Representative Mike Ball told me when I was yeah. in the state house. I, I remember walking in the chamber just being so amazed. I was like, I am in the state legislature. Look at all these great people that are here. And how did I get here? And you almost feel inadequate. And he said, Andrew, let me tell you something. He said, you're going to spend your first two years wondering how you got here. The next two years you're going to walk around, you're going to be like, how did he get here? Yeah. And that is so true. <laughs> but I'm still in the how did yeah. I get here stage of, of being a statewide official. It's, it, yeah. it never gets old. Well, that's awesome. Andrew Sorrell, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, that'll wrap up our regular episode. Uh, again, um, love having Andrew on. He's done a phenomenal job. Uh, everywhere he's been, he's shown tremendous courage. Uh, and I think it's fitting that he would be uh, the 100th episode uh, of 1819 News, the podcast. Um, he played a big part in us wanting to start 1819 News. He may, he may not even know this, but uh, as we looked out and it's like, look, there are people down there with courage, um, but there needs to, they need help. Like if people knew what was going on in the state and and, the, and their voters knew and, and you know, the citizens knew, um, they would actually be able to make a difference. And so we wanted to give people uh, like Andrew, who had the courage to stand up and do what was right, even if it cost him, uh, we wanted to give people like that support uh, and 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 to be able to tell everyone uh, how great they are and things like that. So uh, very fitting uh, that Andrew was here for that. And um, before we wrap up, I want to ask you guys, go uh, become a member, 1819news.com. Go there, go to the website, uh, click the button that says become a member. Membership start as little as $5 a month. You can obviously go up from there. With that, you're going to get access to special behind-the-scenes content like we're about to record with Andrew. Uh, and you also get cool merch. We've got the coolest freaking hats on the planet. Just saying, um, if I don't say so myself, but they really are cool. Sign up, get a hat, get some merch. Uh, but more than anything, you're supporting citizen-supported journalism. You're supporting Honest News, uh, nonprofit journalism. So please do that. And until next time, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry. <laughs>